Welcome to the Farmer Chronicles, episode 74, The Farm Bill. Now let's bring back that beat. The Farmer Chronicles, your go-to spot for anything farm, wheat after wheat. I'm your host today, Ellie DiCaprio, and I'm very lucky to have with me here today Aaron Lai, a reporter for Agricultural Latest. We'll also get to hear insight from local New York State farmers and from a professor of agricultural economics. Before we begin, i got to give a big shout-out to my co-host, Livia Altman. She couldn't be with us here today in studio, but did a lot of work behind the scenes on this podcast. Um, but right now, she's actually at home in Switzerland, training for the upcoming Olympics in South Korea. Uh, she's the captain of the Swiss national team um, in women's ice hockey. Four years ago, they brought home a bronze medal, and we just want you to know that we're rooting for you back home, Liv, so good luck. So let's dive right in here. Um, the Farm Bill started out as a way to help struggling farmers after the Great Depression. According to estimates by the Congressional Budget Office, the cost of the Agricultural Act of 2014 is $956.4 billion. Today, we're going to take a closer look at the Farm Bill and reflect on some of the important components. So about 80% of the Farm Bill spending goes to food stamps, which are also known as SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. This program provides food purchasing assistance for low- and no-income people living in the United States. It is given to recipients monthly on an EBT card. SNAP benefits have two advantages. First, they help families meet their basic nutritional needs, and second, they provide a guaranteed market for agricultural producers. I had the pleasure of speaking to Wendy Burkhout Spiegel, the owner of Common Thread Community Farm in Madison, New York, and she discussed her thoughts of this program. I guess um, the state has to do with the Farmers Market Nutrition Program, so they administer the program where we accept uh, low income coup coupons from low income folks at the farmers market. So that's a helpful program that we participate in that the state runs. Listening to this, the SNAP is undoubtedly an efficient and effective program. It currently provides over 47 million participants in about 23 million low-income households with debit cards that they can use to purchase food each month. Even more, economists have estimated that in a weak economy, every dollar increase in SNAP benefits guarantees about a $1.70 in economic activity. So food stamps are obviously a huge part of the Farm Bill, but... Let's move on to another important element, which are the subsidies. Uh, the subsidies make up about 14% of Farm Bill spending, and we're really lucky today to have Aaron Lai, uh, an expert on these subsidies, here today to talk about it. The government offers four types of subsidies. The first one is premium subsidies for crop insurance, which assists farmers with risks that occur over the production period or a given crop year. Federal crop insurance is sold and serviced through private insurance companies. Professor Carl Zuloff from Ohio State University provides more details about this program. A risk that occurs, and they, and they define what is planting and what is harvest, for a risk that occurs within that period of time, assistance can be provided, assuming that that risk affects either revenue or yield. The second and the third programs are Agricultural Risk Coverage, the ARC program, and Price Loss Coverage, the PLC program. Farmers can opt in to either one of them. 
The main difference between these two programs and crop insurance is that they handle risks across multiple years instead of the ones associated with production for one given year. This is related to the nature of the farming industry. Agriculture has a history of going through multiple year periods of low returns, even negative returns. This multiple year risk that's caused by a number of factors, but principally that crop prices can drop far faster than can crop input costs. Even though ARC and PLC deal with the same kind of risks, their designs are very different. ARC is a revenue program, so it includes both price and yield, and it uses a moving average of the past five years' market returns. And then it defines what a decline is as if the revenue from that year, say from 2017, is more than 14% below what the average revenue was for the previous five years, which in this case would be 2012 to 2016. ARC uses the markets to establish the benchmark, but for PLC, the Congress sets the reference price. If the U.S. average price is below that price, then farmers receive a payment. The last program is the Agricultural Marketing Loan Fund. The Congress also sets the price for this program. So it's kind of like a disaster price, if you would, okay? Mm-hmm. If prices got really, really low, okay, this program would kick in. Another difference between these four forms of subsidies is the criterion for what enters the calculation. The ARC and the PLC program are based upon historical base acres, so what you used to plant on that crop whereas crop insurance and the marketing loan are based on what is actually planted for that year. So they vary in that way also. Wow, that's a lot of really good information. Uh, Thank you, Aaron, for your summaries and Professor Zoloff for that input. Um, However, you know, I do have some questions about the effectiveness of these programs. You know, although politicians love to emphasize how much the subsidies could help small farms, most of the money goes to larger farms, am I right? You know, in recent years, the biggest 10% of farm businesses receive about 72% of farm subsidies. Well, I think it's reasonable that bigger farms receive more subsidies. The more you produce, the bigger the subsidies. The more land you have, the more money you get under ARC and PLC, since the subsidies for both of these programs depend on historical base acreage. Hmm, okay, well... My concern is not so much about the relative distribution of the subsidies as is about their effectiveness. You know, although farmers make up a small number of voters, even in agricultural states, they lobby hard enough to maintain the subsidies. Few lawmakers are willing to vote against farm subsidies or the farm bill in general. Wendy Burkhart, um, the owner of Common Thread, had some observations. The Farm Bureau is um, a farm advocacy organization that lobbies pretty hard for farmers and I think in some cases lobbies too hard for farmers (laughs) but I think they and I'm not sure what other factors have have actually negotiated pretty adventitious um taxes uh and and there are less worker protections for farm workers see Wendy's comments show the power of groups that represent farmers interests 
Now I want to share what Bruce Rivington, the co-owner and grazier of Kremlin Dairy Farms in Hamilton, New York, um, has to say. His medium-sized dairy farm produces milk to make the crime-held butter, which I thoroughly recommend, by the way. And um, what you're going to hear now is a real farmer and um, how he is um, actually impacted by government and showing how maybe there's a slight disconnect. I mean, there, it's easy. It'd be easy for me to stand here and knock this and that, but unless I fully understand the issue yeah. and the implications, there's not much point in my yeah. saying anything. But there's a way too much stuff that's decided because of politics rather than any real world impacts. Yeah. Um, I also think there's, to a certain extent, there's whether it's it's grants or people are pushed suggested, educated to do things in a certain way where the educator doesn't necessarily take into account the full picture. I know of a, you know, of an educator, somebody's in an educator position and they attended a seminar that Cornell put on on raising beef cattle and they came back and they were talking, you know, they, she was just taught that, you know, but how if you can get wean a heavier calf, you're going to sell more pounds of meat, and you're going to get more per pound, and therefore you make a lot more money, so let's push everybody to wean heavier calves. But you look at um, some of the long-term data on, uh, for instance, Profit Probe, and they find that their most profitable farms actually wean lighter than the average calves, because they're calving more in, in tune with the season, and they're putting a lot less feed into that cow during the winter time. So they've got a dry cow in the winter rather than one that's calving in January or February and trying to feed a calf. Or the feed costs of feeding that cow longer is more than the extra money you get for feeding the calf. But they're only looking at the income side without taking a look at the whole picture. Yeah. So Bruce makes a really good point. Tracing its roots back to the Great Depression, the Farm Bill represents state intervention in agriculture and the government's intention to help farmers in the volatile markets. Yet, it's also important to keep in mind that politicians and virtually everyone's perspectives can be limited. Only through trial and error and only through continuous social and academic conversations can we better evaluate the policies and understand people's actual needs. So that's what we are hoping to do with this podcast. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Farmer Chronicles. I want to thank Aaron for joining us and, of course, Professor Zoloff, Wendy, and Bruce for their input on the farm bill. Stay tuned for episode 75, Let It Snow, Let It Snow, On My Farm. And now we'll take this time to thank our wonderful sponsor, Pirate's Booty. Ahoy, mateys. Drop anchor and discover Pirate's Booty, the deliciously baked, never fried, puffed rice and corn snack made with aged white cheddar cheese. Real, tasty ingredients that are easy to pronounce and even easier to enjoy. Make for a snack that's a real treasure. Pirate's Booty.